Welcome to Asbury United Methodist Church. My name is Pastor Will. Thanks for joining our podcast. This is where you'll be able to find all of our sermons, as well as special devotionals and interviews. We hope these messages inspire hope and bring support as you grow on your journey of faith. If you have any questions, or if you want further conversation, or if you simply like what you hear, connect with Asbury through our Facebook page or by checking our website at asburymaitland.org. Well, Francis Collins is a well-known American physician. In fact, for a while, he was the director of the National Institutes of Health, which is a major public health organization here in the United States. Francis Collins is also a New York Times bestselling author. And in 2006, so this would have been about 16 years ago, it's hard to believe that 2006 was 16 years ago, but back in 2006, he wrote a book entitled The Language of God, a scientist presents evidence for belief. The language of God, a scientist presents evidence for belief. How many of you have ever heard of this book or maybe read this book before? We had a few people in the first service who have heard of it or read it. Well, in this book, Dr. Collins, who of course is a scientist, he's a researcher by training, that's his background. In the book, he demonstrates how science doesn't have to undermine faith. Actually, science can undergird faith and support belief in God. But the interesting thing is, as committed as Dr. Collins is to Christianity, he considers himself to be a Christian, a Christ follower. That was not always the case. In fact, up until he was halfway through medical school, Collins considered himself an agnostic. In other words, he wasn't sure if God actually exists. And not only that, but he was moving in the direction of complete total, utter atheism. But then something changed. Something shifted. As he was beginning his third year of medical school, and he was making the transition from the medical school classroom to actually interacting with patients, speaking with patients, talking with patients, he found himself sitting at the bedside of people who were dying, Christian people who were dying, whom physicians were unable to help. And yet the strange thing was, they still had this sense of peace and calm about them. This is what he said about that experience in an interview that he gave with The Atlantic back in 2020. Uh, this was two years ago. He said, watching those individuals at the end of their lives, I was trying to imagine what I would do in that circumstance. Many of these people were deeply committed to faith. I was unsettled to see how they approached the end of life. This was something that I personally was pretty terrified about. They had peace and even a sort of sense of joyfulness that there was something beyond. It made me realize that I had never really gone beyond the most superficial consideration of whether God exists or a serious consideration about what happens after you die. Later in the same interview, Dr. Collins went on to describe his interactions with one particular Christian patient who was dying, to whom he had grown attached. This is what he says about that woman. He says she suffered from advanced cardiac disease, which included episodes of daily crushing chest pain. And yet she came through this all with remarkable peace and was very comfortable sharing the reason for that with me, namely her faith in Jesus. She looked at me in a quizzical way and said, you know, doctor, you have listened to me talk about my faith, but you never say anything 
She put him on the spot. What do you believe? Just a very direct, very simple question, and it was like a thunderclap. That was the most important question I've ever been asked. That dying woman's question, what do you believe? Put Dr. Collins on a journey. The next thing he did was he met with a Methodist minister. The Methodist minister sat down with him, counseled him, dialogued with him, and then referred him to the writings of C.S. Lewis, uh, the great 20th century lay theologian. And it was after Collins read C.S. Lewis's Mere Christianity uh, that he decided to surrender his life to Jesus and put his faith and his hope and his trust in God. So, essentially, what inspired this dramatic shift, this remarkable shift in Dr. Collins from borderline atheism to belief and trust in God was his experience of Christian persons who were dying and their hope and their assurance that death was not the end for them, that there is more to life even after death. There is more to life even after death. And folks, that's what we're going to be talking about this morning. And so today, uh, we are concluding, we are bringing to a close our six-week sermon series called Credo. Uh, I'll remind us that Credo, C-R-E-D-O, Credo is a Latin word that means I believe. And in this sermon series, uh, we have been exploring the Apostles' Creed. We have been journeying through the Apostles' Creed, uh, that creed that we recited a few minutes ago, Uh, The Apostles' Creed is one of the oldest statements of faith, one of the oldest statements of beliefs. And we've been using the Apostles' Creed as a springboard to reflect on our beliefs about God and the Christian faith. So what I want to do is I want to recap what we've talked about so far. We have talked about our belief in God the Father Almighty, the maker of heaven and earth, the first person of the Trinity or the Godhead. We have talked about our belief in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord, the second person of the Trinity, or the Godhead. We have talked about our belief in the Holy Spirit, uh, the third person of the Trinity, the Godhead. We have talked about our belief in the church, the Holy Catholic Church, the universal church, and the communion of saints. We have talked about our belief in the forgiveness of sins. Well, now today, we conclude with the last two articles, the last two articles of the Apostles' Creed. They're up here on the screen. Let's read these together. One, two, three, go. The resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. Amen. The resurrection of the body, that's the first of the last two articles, and the life everlasting, that's the second of the last two articles. And in a nutshell, these articles affirm what Dr. Collins' patients believed, his Christian patients believed, that as Christians, we believe that even after we die, even after we take our last breath, that there is still more to life, that there is hope for us beyond death. And that hope is grounded in a theological concept called the resurrection, the resurrection. Because Jesus was raised 2,000 years ago on Easter Sunday, we have hope in our own resurrection from God one day in the future. But of course, all of this raises a number of questions for us, doesn't it? It raises a number of questions for us about the nature of the resurrection. For example, what is the resurrection going to look like? What's it going to entail? What's it going to involve? What happens to us when we physically die? And listen, we will address as best we can all those questions this morning. But before we do that, before we address these questions that I've just raised, 
What I want to do first is I want to reverse the order of these last two articles of the Apostles' Creed, and I want to talk about this second article first, the life everlasting, the life everlasting. Another more common name for this article that we use in the church is eternal life. And we've probably heard of eternal life. We talk about eternal life a lot in the church. And the reason I want to talk about this article first is there's a misunderstanding, a misconception that many of us tend to hold about eternal life. Actually, maybe some of us here in this room or some of us worshiping online, maybe we hold on to this misconception right now. And that misconception is this. We assume that eternal life is something that we receive when we die. When we physically pass away, when we take our last breath, that's when we assume we receive eternal life. Nothing could be further from the truth. Eternal life does not begin when we die, at least not when we physically die. Eternal life continues when we physically die, but eternal life does not begin when we physically die. Does anybody know when eternal life begins? Eternal life begins, and this is up here on the screen, eternal life begins the moment The moment when by grace we give ourselves over to God and choose to become disciples of Jesus Christ. In other words, the moment we put our trust and our hope in Jesus and we receive God's gift of salvation, that's the very moment that we come to experience eternal life. I love how Jesus puts it in the Gospel of John, chapter 5, verse 24. Jesus says, I tell you the truth, those who listen to my message... Again, this is Jesus speaking, my message, and believe in God who sent me, have. Somebody say have. Does he say will have? Does he say might have? Those who believe in God who sent me have eternal life. They will never be condemned for their sins, but they have already passed, say that with me, already passed from death into life. So let me ask this a question. Is eternal life preceded by death? In a sense, it is, but not physical death. It's preceded by what kind of death? Spiritual death, figurative death, a death of self, a willingness to die to one's own dreams, own ambitions, own desires, and live solely for God. Again, to put it simply, the moment that we put our trust in Jesus for salvation, that is the very moment that we experience God's gift of eternal life. Another name for eternal life uh, that we find in the Gospels Actually, I believe this is just in the Gospel of John, if I'm not mistaken. But another name for eternal life that we do find in Scripture is what Jesus called abundant life. Abundant life. Again, abundant life is another name for eternal life or the life everlasting, but it refers to the very life that we were designed to live, the very life that we were created and made to live. So listen to what Jesus goes on to say in the Gospel of John. This is John chapter 10, verse 10. The thief... In other words, Satan, the devil, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came, Jesus says, that they may have life and have it what? Abundantly. Now, does Jesus say, I came that they may have life and have it in the most mediocre sense possible? That wouldn't get us very excited, would it? I came that they may have life and have it average. Okay good enough. No, Jesus says, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Uh, The Greek word, because remember, the New Testament was primarily written in Greek. 
The Greek word that is used here for abundantly means excessive, overflowing. It doesn't stop. It doesn't quit. It's like the Energizer bunny. It just keeps going and going and going and going and going. A few weeks ago, uh, Pastor Will and I were in Lakeland for annual conference, uh, which is our yearly gathering of Methodist clergy and laity from around our state, our conference. Um, and one of the things that we enjoyed doing at annual conference was eating at various restaurants. Well, one of the restaurants that Pastor Will and I went to with another clergy person is a restaurant in Lakeland. I'm not sure if there are other locations there might be, but I only know of it being in Lakeland. But it's, it's a restaurant called BD's, BD, BD's Mongolian Grill. Has anybody here ever eaten at BD's Mongolian Grill? Oh my gosh, you folks are missing out. <laughs> well, the way the restaurant works is, and we have some pictures of this on the screen, just so you can get an idea if I don't describe it too well. But the way the restaurant works is, you go inside, the host takes you to your table, you sit down, the server comes by, the server asks you if you've ever been to this restaurant before, which gives you an idea that something unique is about to happen. And then after the server takes your drink order, the server will give you a bowl. Not two bowls, just one bowl. And then you're tasked with going to the line, which is filled with all kinds of foods. First you have your noodles, then you have your meats, then you have your vegetables, then you have your sauces, and then finally you have your spices. Now remember, how many bowls do you have? Just one bowl. And your task is to fill that bowl with as much food as you possibly can. Whether it has a lot of food or a little bit of food, you're going to pay the same amount. So your job really is to fill that bowl as much as you possibly can. Now, I went to college in Lakeland. I've lived in Lakeland. I've been to Beatty's Mongolian Grill a bunch of times, more times than I can count. I'm pretty accustomed to how this works. I was the one who recommended that we go to this restaurant. And by the way, I forgot to mention, once your bowl is full, that's when you go to the cooks, and the cooks prepare all those ingredients, and they serve them to you, and you, you take the meal back to the table. So again, I was pretty accustomed to how all this works. So when I went through the line, by the time I got to the cooks, my bowl was right here. The ingredients were right about here. It's pretty good size. I was doing my best to hold it all together without dropping things on the ground. Pastor Will, on the other hand, I didn't get his permission to share this story, by the way. It's better to ask for forgiveness than permission. But Pastor Will, as they would say in the South, bless his heart. He had never been to BD's before. And so he wasn't as experienced as I was. So when he got to the line, or he got to the cook, his bowl was not nearly as full as mine was. In fact, the cook even said to him, uh, you got to go back in line and get some more food. That's not enough. Well, when we come to Jesus and we receive life, Jesus fills our bowl to the brim. He gives us life and then some. Life excessive, life overflowing, life over the top. Now, to be clear, the kind of life that Jesus gives us it's not about financial prosperity. Unfortunately, there are some preachers out there nowadays who will say, well, when you come to Jesus, you're going to be financially prosperous and you're going to be really rich. It's not about financial prosperity. It's not about living a life free of trial or stress or pain or discomfort because, yes, even Christ's followers go through all those things, but it is about living the very life 
that we were created to live, the very life that we were designed to live, loving God, loving our neighbor, serving God, and serving the people around us. When I think of somebody who experienced abundant life, one person who comes to mind for me, and you've heard of her before, is Mother Teresa. Was Mother Teresa rich? Not by any stretch of the imagination. Did she have a really easy life? No. But she loved God, didn't she? She served the poor. She gave all that she could to God's kingdom. She sought to live as a follower of Jesus in this world. Mother Teresa had, and listen, she continues to have in Jesus abundant life. Again, abundant life is another name for eternal life or the life everlasting, as it says in the Apostles' Creed. It's the very life that you and I receive when we spiritually pass from death to life and we take on a new existence and a new identity in Jesus. Listen to what the Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.17. This is one of my favorite scripture passages. Paul writes, So if anyone is in Christ, there is a what? A new creation. Everything old has passed away. See, everything, not some things or most things, everything, Paul says, has become new. We are new creations in Jesus. And a sign of our transformation is the eternal life that we receive from God. This life that will keep on going even after we physically die. Some years ago, I read a book by Pastor John Ortberg called Soul Keeping. Uh, the subtitle is Caring for the Most Important Part of You. Soul Keeping, Caring for the Most Important Part of You. Uh, Ortberg is a pastor in California, and the book was inspired by a series of conversations that Ortberg shared with his mentor and his friend, Dallas Willard. Uh, Dallas Willard passed away in 2013. Uh, he was a Christian philosopher. He was a professor. He taught at some various schools. And these conversations were all about the soul. Well, shortly before Dallas Willard passed away, again, he had cancer, so he knew that he was dying, that his time was running out. He and Ortberg sat down, and they shared a conversation. And, and Willard began to reflect about his own impending death. And at one point in that conversation, in that discussion, this is what Willard said to John Ortberg. He said, I think that when I die, it might take some time before I know it. Huh? What on earth does that mean? I think that when I die, it might take some time before I know it. I think what Dallas Willard meant was, when I die, when I do take my final breath, I'm just going to keep on living the very eternal life that God gave me years ago in Jesus Christ. That life is going to go on uninterrupted by death, unobstructed by death, Death is not going to stop it. So therefore, it might take some time before I realize that physically, I'm no longer alive. But spiritually, I am. But of course, all of this takes us back to the first of these last two articles of the Apostles' Creed about the resurrection of the body. Remember some of the questions we raised earlier? What is the resurrection going to look like? What's it going to involve? What's it going to entail? Or here's a simple way of asking this question. What happens to us when we physically die? You ever wondered that before? 
Has that question ever kept you up at night? Has you thought about it? There are some Christians who believe that when we physically die, that our soul or our spirit escapes our body upon death, and we immediately go to be with God in heaven. You've heard of that before, right? It's a pretty common teaching. But if that's the case, if that's what happens when we die, our soul or our spirit escapes our body and we go to heaven to be with God, well, what about our body? Because doesn't the Apostles' Creed mention the resurrection of the body? So what becomes of our body or our remains if we're cremated? Other Christians believe that when we physically die, we don't immediately go to heaven to be with God. Instead, our soul or our spirit remains in the ground with our body in a period of sleep. They refer to this as soul sleep. Anybody ever heard of soul sleep before or been in a church where soul sleep has been taught? So you're in a period of soul sleep, and then Jesus, one day in the future, he'll come back, he'll resurrect us, he'll restore all things, and at that point, then we go to heaven to be with God forever. What happens to us when we physically die? Let me admit that this is not necessarily an easy question to answer, which is why there's various ideas among uh, different groups of Christians. And the reason for this is, number one, the Bible, as best I can tell, at least on the surface, doesn't give us a direct answer. In other words, the answer isn't just there right on the page, as we want it to be. We have to do a little bit of digging and interpreting. And number two, another reason this is a difficult question is because the reality is, none of us have been there before, have we? None of us have physically died, and so we can't speak from our own experience about what happens next. So all we can do is try to interpret Scripture, the Bible, as faithfully and responsibly as we possibly can. So with all that being said, here's what I personally believe, based on my understanding of Scripture. I personally believe that when we physically die, we are immediately and consciously in the presence of God. I personally believe that when we physically die, we are immediately and consciously in the presence of God. And here's why I believe this. I believe this, number one, because at various points in the Gospels, like in the Gospel of Matthew, in the Gospel of Mark, in the Gospel of Luke, when Jesus referred to his father, he spoke about him as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And then Jesus went on to say that he is a God of the living, not of the dead, indicating that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who had died centuries before Jesus, that somehow they were still alive. They were still living. They were still with God. I also believe this because in Luke chapter 16, Jesus told a story about the rich man and Lazarus. You remember the story? And Jesus said that the rich man and Lazarus immediately went somewhere when they passed away. I also believe this because when Jesus was hanging on the cross, he shared a conversation with a convicted criminal. And the criminal said to him, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And what did Jesus say? Truly, I tell you that today. He didn't say, I tell you that a long time from now, you'll be with me in paradise. He said, truly, I tell you that this very day, you'll be with me in paradise. But beyond the Gospels, I also believe this because in Philippians 1, verse 21, the Apostle Paul says that to live is Christ and to die is gain. And so Paul knew that if he were to die, he was going to gain Jesus. He was going to be with Jesus forever. 
And I also believe this because in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul also said that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And so to me, there is plenty of Scripture that points to the fact that when we do physically die, that we are somehow, in some mysterious way, consciously in the presence of God, immediately in the presence of God. All right. Fair enough. But you still forgot something. What about the resurrection of the body? If we are somehow still in God's presence, consciously, immediately, what about our bodies on the ground or our remains if we're cremated? What happens with all of that? Here's how I make sense of this article in the Apostles' Creed about the resurrection of the body. I do believe that when Jesus returns one day in the future, that there will be a general resurrection of the dead, at which point Jesus will resurrect us, He'll resurrect whatever's left of us, He'll give us a new body, not subject to disease or decay or death. But that doesn't mean, and this is a really important but, that doesn't mean that if we pass away before Jesus returns, that doesn't mean that we are not somehow still in God's presence and with God because I believe that we are. Again, there's enough Scripture that indicates that we are. There's mystery with all this. And actually, as I was working on this message, it occurred to me, it's really interesting how the Apostles' Creed ends. How does the Apostles' Creed end? It ends by talking about the resurrection of the body. And why is that so interesting? Because how does the Apostles' Creed begin? What's the first article of the Apostles' Creed? We talked about it five weeks ago. I believe in God the Father Almighty. What? maker of heaven and earth. So in other words, the Apostles' Creed begins by noting, by highlighting that God is the maker of creation, and the Apostles' Creed ends by looking ahead to the restoration of creation. There will come a day in the future in which God will restore everything. God is completely committed to the physical realm. God made the physical realm. God brought the physical realm into being. There will come a day in the future in which God will restore all things that he has made, even our bodies. So given all this, lend me in my sermon with this question. Or actually, let me end the sermon series with this question. If that's how committed and devoted God is to us as human beings, then is death something that many people tend to fear and be worried about? Is death something that we need to be fearful about or concerned about? It's not. God who gives eternal life in Jesus, God who will one day restore our bodies, God will not abandon us at death. God will not abandon us at death. There was a pastor who was with a man and he was dying. He was afraid about this. And so we asked this pastor what he could expect when the time finally came. The pastor thought about it and he said, remember how when you were small sometimes you would fall asleep in random places like in the back seat of the car or in the kitchen or on the living room couch 
or in church. No, it never happens in church. But then suddenly you would wake up and you would find yourself in your own bed, in your own room. What happened? Well, of course, what happened was after you fell asleep, your mom or your dad came and they gently picked you up. They put you right where you needed to be. That's what will happen when you physically die. God, your heavenly father, God, your heavenly parent won't abandon you. He won't forsake you. Rather, through his love, he will pick you up and he'll carry you home. And by the way, this home to which he will carry us, it is far better, far greater than anything that we could ever dream up. I close my sermon with these words from the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Check out what Paul writes as he references the prophet Isaiah. That is what the scriptures mean when they say, no eye has seen. No ear has heard, and no mind has imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. Thanks be to God. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you for your commitment to us as human beings. Let's be real. You are way more committed to us than we are to you. You love us so deeply. Your grace is so perfect. God, thank you for this truth, that in Jesus you give us eternal life, that that life will go on uninterrupted by death, that we will be with you in your presence in some mysterious way that we don't fully understand, and that there will also come a day in the future in which you will restore our bodies and all things that you have brought into being because, God, you love this physical realm. You yourself have made it, created it, put it together. We thank you for this. God, I pray that you would continue to empower us as a church to be committed to your kingdom work in this world so that more and more people might come to understand the depth of your love in and through Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.